Welcome to another inspirational message from the lead pastor of North Hills Church, Doug Green. It is our prayer that you are strengthened and encouraged by this message. Now prepare your hearts to hear from God today. Brenda is in Missouri. Guess why she's in Missouri? Because little Zaya is seven months old and needs a grandmother. Uh, unfortunately, I couldn't go with her uh, because he also needs a grandpa. But she is there. My son-in-law got deployed to another. Um, he works with a relief agency called Convoy Hope, and he's gone for a week. And she heard that, and she was on the plane <laughs> headed towards the cold winter of Missouri having a good old time. This is the second week she hasn't been in church, FYI, if you're counting. And I probably should explain so that you know that we're okay. <laughs> we weren't actually okay, but we are now. And that is, um, sometime in November, I got asked by a pastor friend of a really significant church in the Central Valley to lead a marriage retreat with Brenda over on the coast. And at the time, our marriage was in no situation to be leading a marriage retreat, and I was smart enough not to ask because I already knew what the answer would be. And so I was going to wait for a better time to approach her. And then we had a fire. And to be quite honestly, we were just scrambling. And it seems like I have been for months now. And I just decided, um, I mean, I just forgot. I just forgot all about it. And then I was reminded weeks later, and I actually wrote the pastor and said, I'm so sorry, uh, do you still want us? And he said, yes. So I decided I was going to ask Brenda, and I did. And she responded with, there's absolutely no way we are doing a marriage retreat. The condition of our marriage right now is no place for us to be giving advice to other married couples. And, um, you know, I was thinking it's the perfect time for us to go and do a marriage retreat because we can make them feel better about themselves. Uh, <laughs> it's been stressful, obviously. And so um, she said no, and I hesitated on calling him back. And in the meantime... A friend of hers got word that the church had announced that we were coming and wrote her and said, we're so excited that you're coming to do a marriage retreat. And now that the word was out, she was stuck and we had to go. <laughs> Preparing for the marriage retreat was uh, nothing short of uh, difficult because um, when I prepare, I don't need to, although she'll give me her feedback, I don't need to work with her, I, but getting up and doing a marriage retreat by myself is just really weird. Um, so uh, we prepared, and we worked our way through it, and God really helped us, because I just need to let you know, last weekend in Oxnard, we did four sessions, and it has had great, wonderful, positive impact on our marriage. Wonderful. It was really, really cool, actually. It was surprisingly cool. 
And from the response of those that were there, it worked for them too. <laughs> it's not really about them, it's really about us, right? And God used it for his glory. So our marriage is so good, Brenda's now working on the, being a grandmother. So that's where she is. Have you ever made a costly sacrifice uh, for Jesus Christ? Do you remember the last time that you actually really made a costly sacrifice for him? Obviously, he has made a costly sacrifice for us. We sing about it, we read about it, we acknowledge it, we understand that our entire faith in the life to come is based upon the costly sacrifice that Jesus Christ has made for us. But what have I really done, really, really done, that really, really cost me? And that's what I've been thinking about all week long. It was a couple years ago that I uh, was walking through that part of the building back when the multipurpose room wasn't unfinished. And we had had a season one summer where we tried a special service, and part of the, the venue was to have a bunch of couches in the multipurpose room. And one day I was walking through that room, looking at these couches and recognizing that these were all donated couches by people in the church. The young adults wanted a whole slew of couches, and so the word went out, and families in the church gave these couches to us. Now, some of the couches were pretty decent shape. Some of them were kind of worn. And some of them really should have just gone past our church all the way up to the landfill. <laughs> there was a whole room full of couches. And furthermore, I know what was going on because families gave the couches, maybe even some of you, gave these couches and made room for new couches in their house. Gave us their old worn couches and bought new couches for their house. And in a self-righteous fit, I thought to myself, what is wrong here? They gave us the worn out couches so they could buy new couches. And about that time that I was feeling very full of myself, and very angry with everybody else, I looked over to the right, and there was sitting our old couch <laughs> that we had donated to the church so that we could get a new couch. <laughs> Isn't it often like that? <laughs> you are feeling really self-righteous about somebody else's behavior, and then all of a sudden you look in the mirror and you're like, if you're paying attention to the Holy Spirit, you're like, oh my goodness, what's going on? Sacrifice. It's uh, what Jesus Christ does for us. And by the way, um, <laughs> if you read the New Testament lately, especially the Gospels, you'll realize that we are supposed to live that way too. Sacrifice. It's supposed to be part of our Christian DNA. And so here... In the next uh, few weeks, 40-some days, we're going to look at the final part of the Gospel of Mark. 
chapters 14, 15, and 16. They tell the story of Christ's sacrifice for us. It's called the Passion Week. It's called the final days of Christ, that week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday when Jesus Christ is arrested, he's tried by humans who he created, he's beaten, he's nailed to a cross, he dies for the sins of the world, he's placed in a tomb. And of course we know on Easter Sunday he's no longer in the tomb because he's defeated death, hell, sin, and darkness. This is uh, the Passion Week story, and it's the appropriate time for us to tell it because we now enter into the Lenten season that begins this Wednesday with Ash Wednesday. So here in this time, we're going to talk about sacrifice. And it's interesting to me that in chapters 14 through 16, that they begin in chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, with a story of sacrifice. In this case, giving a shadow of what's to come, there is an anonymous woman who sacrifices for Jesus, paving the way for the sacrifice that he is going to make in the days ahead. So we read about this story in chapter 14 of Mark. And as we read it, ask yourself the question that I've been asking. When was the last time when you really, really sacrificed for him? And be open to the fact that God is calling you in new ways to do something you've never done before. Let's read it together. Chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Now the Passover... And the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. We know that uh, Jesus uh, sits down with his uh, disciples and has a Passover meal on Thursday. So you're looking at how they number here. It could be either Tuesday or Wednesday. And they're in Jerusalem. And in this setting, the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, Bethany, a suburb of Jerusalem, where Jesus was obviously spending the night during that final week of life. He's here at the home of Simon, who probably was at one time a leper. The name has stuck as he's hosting this meal, as Jesus reclines at the dinner table. There's a woman who comes with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. In some translations, verse 5 is, it could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, a year's wages, and the money given to the poor. 
and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will have, you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be also told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear him. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Here we have a story of sacrifice. And it's arranged in a unique kind of way. Check this out. It is arranged in the way that Mark has been in the habit of arranging things all throughout the first 13 chapters. So this should come as no surprise to you in chapter 14. Five paragraphs are written in this passage. And uh, in the first paragraph, you have uh, what is a bad example. The story of the religious leadership looking for a way to kill Jesus secretly. And then in the last paragraph, you have another bad example. Judas Iscariot looking for a way to betray Jesus. So you have in this passage then what you might call uh, a sandwich. Mark has done this, an intercalation where one story is broken up and told after in between there's another story that's told so that the top and the bottom could just be one story, then you can go to the next story. Instead, Mark breaks it up in half and tells a story in between. And in so doing, he brings emphasis to the story on the outside, the sandwiches, if you will, and brings emphasis to the story in the middle. The bad example in between those two slices of bread is a good example. Here's a woman who makes a huge sacrifice and Jesus who commends her and defends her in her sacrifice. Well, let's take a look at these, um, this structure and talk about what God wants to say to us. In the first part, you see this bad example, and here it is. It says uh, in this uh, Passover time, all the religious leadership, they were gathering together and they were scheming and they were secretly trying to figure out how to plot to kill Jesus. They weren't doing this out in the open. They weren't being transparent. They were in the dark shadows trying to figure out how to kill Jesus. They're smart enough to know that you don't want to do it during the Passover festival. Why? Because Jerusalem has been jammed with people who've come from all the neighboring areas, from Galilee, from the north, from the south, east and west, and they've jammed into this town, and it's so crowded that the, it's the last place you're ever going to do something covertly. People are jammed in there. And plus, Jesus was highly popular with the people. And so their plan was to wait until Passover was over then they could find a way to grab him and kill him 
and not be blamed for it. That's what was going on with the religious people. Now we look at the other side, the other half of the sandwich, and we see another bad example. This time it's Judas, Iscariot. Neither one of those names ever appear in, uh, on the birth certificates of people today. He's the epitome of a bad apple, right? He's one of the disciples, and he looks to betray Jesus, to hand Jesus over. I find this interesting, and the question is, why? Why does a guy who's just spent three years being discipled by Jesus turned so wrong? Could it be obvious answer? People say is he did it for money. Money. Well, yeah. But there's got to be something more than that. Was he disappointed with Jesus' political ambition? Was he somebody who was sitting in church every week and just slowly character kind of drifted away and he became a person who found no affection for the man he had been hanging with. Well, he's looking for a way to betray him, to hand him over. The religious leadership that we heard about in the first part of the chapter, they're delighted to hear that he now has a way to do it in such a way that they're not going to be found out. He's going to wait for a very secret time when he's away from the crowds, like at night, he's in a garden, he's off out of the city, and that's when Judas is going to do it. And furthermore, they're not only delighted to hear it, they're going to give him money. So it says that Judas watched for an opportunity. Now, what's the irony of this is in the first 13 chapters, Jesus has been saying over and over again, look, See, hear, watch. For the kingdom of God is near. Pay attention to what God's doing. Open your eyes, open your ears, open your heart. And here Judas takes that teaching and does the exact opposite. He's now looking for a way that he can hand Jesus over. So here you have these two bad examples and sandwiched in between is the exact opposite, calling even more emphasis to this sacrifice that this woman makes. Here in verse 3, we see her there in Bethany at this home. They're having dinner, and Jesus is reclined. He's, we would call it, he's kind of laying, kind of slouched on the floor at a low table, having dinner with a table filled with men. And there's a woman that comes in with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. Bottom line, this alabaster jar is a very thin jar that's uh, very fragile. And uh, inside of it is a perfume that comes all the way from India. This is expensive. We've already heard that. It's worth about 300 denarii. In a man's world, he gets paid a denarii a day. It's like a day's wages. So this is like a year's wages. But more than likely for a woman, she didn't get paid the same level as a man. This might be two to three years of wages. 
This is her nest egg. This is her most precious thing. This is something she's been saving for some special occasion. This is the most precious thing she has. When you're talking about sacrifice, she's going down her list, and at the top of her list is this. So what does she do? She breaks the jar, and in the process of breaking it, you can never use it again. She pours the jar of perfume on his head. Jesus is sitting at a dinner table. Imagine this. All men, they're reclined. There's probably laughter. There's probably good conversation. There's a sense, there's reverence, there's Passover, the whole thing. A woman enters into the room and pours this perfume on his head, which is highly risky. It's highly strange. I mean, I don't know, you fellows in the room, how you're going to feel about that taking place at the restaurant or at the tables today for lunch. Somebody pours perfume. It, it's not only just perfume, but it's like the perfume you put on people who are dying. And she pours it all over his head. It drips down through his beard all over his clothing. And she does this sacrificially. Well, what does Jesus do? Jesus, in this sandwich in the middle, he commends her. He defends her. Check this out. He says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. Imagine the heartbeat of this woman who's just done this very risky thing, thinking, oh my goodness, did I make a mistake? And Jesus says, hey, what you just did was really cool. It was beautiful. You did what you could. You, pu you poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial, which is probably not what anybody was expecting him to say. You're what? Even though he's been talking about how he's going to go to a cross and how he's going to die, nobody really quite gets it. But for some reason, this woman, out of obedience, uh, God's prompting her to do something risky. She's actually the one who puts the perfume on Jesus that he'll carry with him to the tomb. I thought about this because there's no taking it back. In that world, in the shortness of time, in just a few days, he's going to get arrested, he's going to be tried. He's going to be beaten. And through all of those things, whether he's standing in front of the chief priest, whether he's in front of Pilate, where he goes to the cross, to the beatings, to the tomb, he smells like this perfume. He takes it everywhere for the rest of the week. It's huge what she does. Jesus puts this, Jesus allows her to prepare him in the way that you prepared a body that you placed in a tomb. He's still alive, and he's prepared to go into the tomb. And he says what she's done will also be told in memory of her. We don't know her name, but we're still talking about it. Here's a woman 
who sacrificially gave the best thing she had, and Jesus said, what you've done to worship me is amazing. Wherever the gospel gets preached, they're going to be telling about this woman's sacrifice. All right. Here's the part that's a little harder for us to digest. It's, it's one thing. The bad example of these Jewish leaderships, we don't like them, we never have, right? We've grown up reading the Bible, not liking the people running the show there. None of us have ever, you know, emulated to like uh, Judas. But oddly enough, in this sandwich, in the middle, is another bad example. But it hits a lot closer to home because these are the church people. They're the disciples, and they're not getting it right either. And may God speak to us as we read this paragraph. It says, some of those present, disciples, they were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. In this fit of self-righteousness, they see this bizarre act of devotion and they begin to talk about it in a way that is very self-righteous. We could have taken that money and given it to the poor as if they care about the poor in a way that is their highest priority. But furthermore, they correct this woman <laughs> indignantly, they're angry, they're mad, they're seething, they rebuke her. This verb is, it's, it's, a, it, it's a continual verb, it's not a one-time rebuke, they're continually rebuking her over and over again, and they're doing it Harshly. They're really um, ganging up on this woman with harsh rebuke. And what does Jesus do to defend her? This is powerful. He says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? He didn't say it like that. He says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? It's the same way that, remember when disciples tried to get the children away from Jesus? And they said, you know, uh, you're bothering him. Jesus says, don't stop the children from coming to me. He rebukes the disciples then, and he rebukes them now. Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. That first part of verse 7, the poor you will always have with you, it's a quote from Deuteronomy. God says, the poor you will always have with you, and you are commanded to take care of them. Uh, God's established his heart for the poor. Jesus has reinforced it in all of his teachings in previous chapters. Jesus isn't saying the poor aren't important. He's saying the poor are going to be there, and you, you will have a chance Today, tomorrow, the next day, to help them if you really care about them. find that interesting because sometimes the best way to combat a fit of self-righteousness is to say, wow, 
Do you really care about this issue? Um, I'm looking forward to having you tell me what you're going to do about it right now. Wow, you're really passionate about this. Uh, you have a chance now to go do something about it. Because as you know, it's easier to be mad about something and mad about what people aren't doing, but, but not necessarily ready to do anything yourself. Jesus is calling them on their self-righteousness. He says, but a very important last half of chapter, last half of verse 7, but you will not always have me. My time is short. And I'm about to do something that's going to change the poor, the rich, everybody in between. I'm about to go to the cross and die for the sins of mankind. And ultimately, the poor need our financial help. But what they really need in a Passover season is they need rescue from the plagues of hell. They need rescue from the sin that holds people in their slavery. And she has prepared me for burial, and she has prepared me to do the work that God has sent me here to do. Her worship, although quite radical, is actually brilliant. And we'll be talking about her and her example for years to come. All right. So here you have it. Risky, kind of bizarre behavior. You got to just imagine perfume, choking perfume, that everywhere you go, it's going to go with you. And it's all over you. It's all the way down, dripping down your back and your front and so forth. It was done in an emotional way. It's over the top. It's uh, extravagant. It's years' worth of money poured out in one second. And you can hear the church people saying, you know the way that she worships is a little over the top. I'm sure glad that I don't move around like that, right? You know, uh, was that really necessary to fall down on the ground and get on your face in a public service like this? Aren't they kind of being way over the top? You mean to tell me that God told you to take your most precious piece of jewelry and to turn it over to be sold so that the money can go to a missionary. Are you serious? We just paid for you to go through four years of college, and that's hundreds of thousands of dollars that we just invested in you, and you're going to go live among the poor in the third world and help them? What kind of mother and father would let their kids do that? You mean to tell me that God's calling you to do something in your retirement. You mean to tell me that you're really going to do that? Do you realize how disruptive that's going to be to your life? He's saying, but I'm not looking for recognition. I'm just, I want you to know because 
would you pray for me? This is bizarre. It's crazy. I don't know. I don't understand. I don't get it all. Well, I, I just think that's really weird that you want to do that. So this week, got the text on Monday that one of our sheepfold moms who's been fighting cancer and struggling and raising the kids, sheepfold is a ministry that takes women who are battered and abused, gives them refuge in a home with their kids. Often they leave with just what they have, what they're wearing, and provides them a place for them to get back on their feet and to perhaps separate themselves from the abuse that they're enduring. I love the sheepfold. Don't mess with the sheepfold. It's an incredible ministry. And we've had a long 15-plus years of relationship with our church with them. This mom, who's been really sick, got really seriously sick on Monday and has been in the hospital down at UC Irvine for the entire week. And then there came up the thought, what's going to happen with the kids? <laughs> and lots of people are so delighted that the Holy Spirit is speaking, people are listening, in our church stepped up and said, we'll take them. I'm not talking to Brenda, I'm saying, that's like a huge sacrifice and disruption to life. Could we do that? I mean... We have this rental house that we're using <laughs> for just a few of us, right? Could we do that? And I, you know, you start counting the cost. And I'm delighted to tell you that there has been a couple who, in their early retirement, has decided to put their plans on hold and to care for these children. To me, um, that's an equivalent to what this woman did. It's an act of obedience and sacrifice to a Savior who's calling us to live like Him. I don't know what He's calling you to do. I don't know what He's been asking you to do. (laughs) I don't know how crazy it might sound, but I know that when you prioritize God over your need to be approved by man, you're making a really wise choice. When you do something that's risky, something that's costly, and you really truly believe, and and sure it's going to be emotional, sure it's going to be somewhat spontaneous, but I think those are the decisions that on your deathbed you do not regret. When you live extravagantly, for God. And I'll be honest. I'm just kind of in this place right now where I'm wondering if am I even willing or what have I done to really extravagantly worship God lately. And that's why I'd like to ask you to join me in a special season. Uh, Maybe this is just for me and you're going to do it um, because you're being asked to do it or maybe God's saying the same thing to you. 
a season of sacrifice, a time of prayer and fasting in the days ahead. And if the ushers will pass out this little brochure, I'd like to call you to a <clears throat> special season. If the musicians would come and join me on stage, we'll prepare for our conclusion. Here in the Lenten season of 2020, which begins uh, this Wednesday with billions of Christians all around the world, many of them will put ashes on their forehead. We won't do that. But we will begin a season of committing to fasting and prayer in a new and special kind of way. This will tell you a lot about it, but essentially the idea of fasting at its best is not about something you're going to gain from God, some way that you're going to use God to lose weight or give up whatever. It's about you doing something that will be sacrificial so much so that every day you'll think about it and in so thinking about it, you'll take that time to spend in prayer. Listening to God, talking to God, preparing your heart for what God wants to do. Jesus, before he started his public ministry, went into the desert for 40 days. And he prepared himself with fasting so that he could be prepared to do what the Father was calling him to do. I'm asking you to join me in a time of fasting and prayer over the next 40-some days. Here's how we're going to do it. Quite simple. Number one... We're going to ask why. There's a whole list of reasons why that are on the back, seven reasons why, um, all kinds of reasons why God might be calling you to a special season. And then once you realize um, why, you're going to then uh, make the commitment to give up something so that you can be in a place of prayer and fasting. There's all kinds of ways in which you can commit but ultimately, there's a place on the back here where you can make a commit. You put this in your Bible. It just kind of reminds you. You put it in your dash, wherever reminds you of the commitment that you're making to pray and to fast. You don't want to fast without praying. And the fasting that you do will help you remember to pray. And so you commit to doing this, and then you go for it. 40 days. The 40 traditional days of Lent are between um, Ash Wednesday and the, it gets broken the day after Easter, the, Saturday, uh, the day before Easter, the Saturday before Easter. And during that time period, you're going to go without something that will get your attention and help you to pray. Traditionally, it's food. When your stomach growls because you're missing that meal, it reminds you in that biological clock to take time and just put yourself in a position to hear from God. And finally, um, this probably should go without saying, anytime you pray, anytime you put yourself in a position to hear from God, you should expect that He's going to talk to you. I don't know what your issues are. It might be a sense that God has got change on the horizon. It might be that you've lost joy. You just don't know him anymore. It might be 
for the sake of somebody else who doesn't know him. I don't know what your issues are. It might be healing. I just want you to know that if we do it together, there's a solidarity that not just we as a community have, but we have with Christians all over the world who are asking these same kinds of questions. I have my reasons why. Quite frankly, I, I just need God. I just need his presence in ways that will heal some of the junk that's been um, hovering over me. How's that? And um, I just think we should expect that God's going to meet us in powerful ways. And by the way, collectively and individually, we need change. Um, We're not there yet. We need to move in a direction that God has in store for us. So, would you consider the possibility between now and Wednesday figuring out what God is calling you to do and then be benefited by the fact that we're doing it together? We're not going to broadcast it. We're not going to brag about it. (laughs) Probably shouldn't post about it, how you're in the fourth day and it's really hard because the church has asked you to fast and would you pray for me? Just do it privately. And may our sacrifice um, be met with the praise and the approval of an almighty God who wants to break through in many of your lives. So close. But I just really think and I expect that he's going to do something powerful in in many of your situations. And he's going to do it for me too. This concludes our teaching today. We hope that you have been strengthened and encouraged. For more information about North Hills Church, visit www.northhillschurch.us.